On Friday, I thought I was getting a sore throat. I really didn't feel all that well, and I thought maybe I should tell Mark or someone that I didn't think I should preach on Sunday. Then, after this morning's sermon, I felt about this small for even thinking that. Lyle's positivity has always befuddled me. Sometimes I think to myself, uh, come on, Lyle, why are you so happy? (laughs) Uh, Why can't you just be half miserable like the rest of us? (laughs) I'm obviously not known for my overwhelming positivity, but Lyle definitely is. And I've certainly taken him for granted and how much I appreciate him and the influence he's had in my life. As you know, we're studying Romans chapter 8 this evening. I thought I had a good understanding of Romans as a whole until I was asked to explain it. It's a really good example of how much of a difference there is in in just reading and actually studying Scripture. Jumping right into the Scripture, I want to examine the very first verse out of Romans 8. I want to read it out of the ESV. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's a wonderful verse, isn't it? It's uh, what I call a bumper sticker verse. It's something that's printed and plastered on decorations, pictures, and other things that you can buy at a Christian bookstore. However, it's not the best translation when it comes to this passage. I don't believe the whole ESV is a poor translation. This is just one of those verses that's missing a little. Romans 8 and 1 out of the King James Version. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. Romans 8 and 1 out of the Wycliffe Bible, Therefore now nothing of condemnation is to them that be in Christ Jesus, which wander not after the flesh. Do you see the qualifiers? Not walking after fleshly lusts. See, this verse and others like it are often cherry-picked to support a very common preconceived position. The position that once you accept Jesus into your heart, that you are saved and you can pretty much continue on with your life as usual with little to no changes in behavior or lifestyle. See, this is a good example of why we should not rely on just one translation. Isaiah 28 and 10 out of the New King James, For precept must be upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little, there a little. I believe that this scripture can be applied to what translation we were studying from as well. When Isaiah was written, there was no such thing as a complete Bible version anyway, so by necessity you had to read from actual separate books. Even the King James Version has its imperfections and mistakes. It helps to fully understand what the scriptures are telling us if we will look through different lenses. Compare a newer translation to an older translation, Compare a word-for-word translation for a thought-for-thought translation. Then use what you've read to get a moderate or middle ground understanding of what the verse or chapter is saying. Probably the most well-known and used translation today is the King James Version, which we've had for about 400 years. I think we typically attribute the King James with more authority or clout than other translations. However, even Jesus used and quoted scriptures that were by definition a translation, and much younger translations also. He used the Septuagint, probably the most, which is a translation in Greek, and it was roughly 250 years old at the time when Jesus walked the earth. 
All in all, it's generally agreed on that he quoted three different translations during the three-year ministry in the records that we have in the Gospels, partly because there was three distinct languages that a Jew would be accustomed to at the time, Greek, Aramaic, and Hebrew being the oldest but the least used at the time. Many times his teachings, parables, and scripture quotes were tailored to certain audiences, and certain parables would make more sense in certain languages. I just wanted to touch on that for a moment so we could see the need or the validity for considering multiple different translations when we were studying rather than insisting on just one. Romans 8 out of the New King James. There is therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. <clears throat> On the account of sin, he condemned sin in the flesh that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit, things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. So then those who are in the flesh cannot please God. But you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he is not his. And if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. To the newer young Christian, some scriptures can make you feel a little lost, have difficulty understanding. I think this is one of them. First, you have a lot of talk about spirit and flesh, and then you have the Apostle Paul's writing style where he kind of seems to ramble and say the same things over and over again in different ways. If you're a lifelong Christian who has had his nose in the Scripture regularly, then this may all sound perfectly normal and understandable to you. But to someone else, it may be much more difficult, simply because we don't walk around in our daily life distinguishing from the flesh or the spirit. Those are not words that we really use on a daily basis apart from spiritual discussion. So if that's not the background you have, it can be a challenge to understand what's being said here, let alone how to apply it. I'm not going to pretend to have a firm grasp on what's being stated here. I'm definitely going to give the kindergartner analysis and perspective. So first, we have a lot of talk of the spirit in these verses. Languages and words evolve and change over time. So sometimes we can be thinking about an incorrect definition when we're reading scripture. So I went to the Strong's Concordance to look up this word spirit so we can have a better understanding of what Paul was trying to say in the original Greek. The definition in Strong's is G4151. And as I sifted through what Strong's had to say, I, I picked up on a definite theme of wind. You have a, a movement of air, a blast of the wind, hence the wind itself, breath of the nostrils or mouth. 
as I applied the analogy of a blowing wind to Romans 8, it, it really helped me get a little better grasp of what the Spirit of God is. And if anyone understands wind, it's here in West Texas, right? There's no stopping it. If you're working outside on almost anything in the wind, you're going to have a hard time. The farmers cannot spray their crops in the wind. Irrigation is severely hindered due to rapid evaporation. If you're working on equipment, you're going to be eating dirt the whole time. Wind is a huge problem in my line of work as well. You can't pour concrete in high winds. If you're trying to plumb a fence post or a building column, the bubble on the level is just jumping around. If you're trying to put up steel sheets on a wall or a roof, it's dangerous and difficult. No matter what you're doing, you're powerless to stop the wind. That is the will of God, the Spirit of God. Just like the uncontrollable, unstoppable wind, you are completely powerless to change or stop the Spirit of God. But just like when we're working outside in the wind and fighting it and eating the blowing dirt and doing things in less than ideal situations, we so often fight the Spirit of God also. By contrast, that's the definition of the flesh. Now, this is just an illustration. I'm not saying it's against God's will to work in the wind. We're not all farmers, and we don't all have experience in construction. So maybe a better example, I think, that we can relate to is driving in the wind. Driving against God's will is an illustration. The fuel mileage is terrible. You're fighting to keep the car on the road. Visibility is sometimes hindered. And everyone else going the same way has all the same problems you do. I remember driving behind a semi-truck one time that could not keep his truck in his lane. The back end of the trailer kept twisting, and there were a couple of times that his left-hand tires got off the ground. I'm sure you've seen it on the news or maybe even seen it in person when one of these trucks actually flips over in our high wind events. That's living according to the flesh. Imagine every time you drove anywhere, the driving situation was what I described. That's what it's like living according to the flesh and not according to the Spirit of God. Every day you get in the car, it doesn't matter which way you go when you leave the driveway. It's a hectic free-for-all where your knuckles are turning white because you're gripping the steering wheel so hard. That's why Paul used this original Greek word he used, that G4151, when describing the Spirit of God. It's not hard to see that it implies something that's unchangeable and unstoppable. So we can see how impossible it is to fight or stop the wind, then what other choice do we have except align ourselves with it? Romans 8 and verse 6, For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. <clears throat> I'm sure we've all been fortunate enough to have a tailwind at one point when we were traveling, like riding the north wind all the way to Lubbock. You get good fuel mileage and didn't even know the wind was blowing. But at the time this was written, they probably understood riding the wind better than we do. For over 90% of human history, if you were going to take a boat or a ship anywhere, and you, want, you wanted the wind in your favor. If you had a straight tailwind in your sails, you could just skip like a smooth stone to where you were going. But if you had to head straight into a headwind, it was flat out misery. There's an illustration I found on the internet that explains what this was like. It's a zigzag motion. For example, if you want to head straight west into a headwind, you had to turn your sail completely sideways and actually head northwest at a pretty slow pace. Then after you've done that for a little while, you turned your sail completely around to the other side, turned the ship 90 degrees and sailed southwest for a little while, creating a zigzag motion. This was very hard on the ship and tackling. It was hard work for the crew. 
And even if you were just a passenger on the ship, it was hard on you as well because your transportation time was doubled and in, sometimes, uh, in some cases it was tripled. Even in ancient times, time was money. And if it took you twice as long to get your goods to market, then your profit per time unit is cut in half. Not only that, but the ship would ride at a tilted state the entire time. Each time you made a zigzag motion, the ship tilted the other direction. So if you're asleep in your bunk when the poor overworked crew changes direction, you probably got rolled out onto the floor if you were not accustomed to sea travel. <clears throat> I may be spending too much time explaining this, but it's like I said earlier, in common conversation, the word spirit doesn't get used much. And when it does, it probably gets filtered through a modern American definition rather than a biblical definition. I think it really helps to fully understand what's being said in the original Greek by Paul through the inspiration of God. We need to align ourselves with the unchangeable, unstoppable blast of wind that is the Spirit of God. We need Him to be in us and us in Him. Our thought process needs to be trained and be able to recognize and execute the will of the Spirit like stated in verse 5. I really believe that understanding the uncontrollable and unstoppable properties and analogies we've discussed can show how miserable it is to try to live a life according to the flesh. Let's move on and start reading again in verse 12. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. I remember one time Marlon Cole said that he used to think of God as a grumpy old man that was just waiting to get us. Someone that was never happy with us. I think I've been guilty of this, of thinking this as well. And these verses here really combat that mindset. Just look at verse 15. That phrase, Abba, Father, it's a, a very intimate word in Aramaic. If I was talking about Lyle being Titus's dad, I would not use the word Abba. It would be too personal. It would be too intimate of a word to use. You wouldn't just call anyone by this. I think of a small child that's scared or hurt or really needing their parents. That's when the word Abba would be used, much like Daddy or Papa would be used in the English language. That's why this scripture is so important to study in detail. God is not just a grumpy old man. He's meant to be near and dear to us in every way. Also, we need to consider this spirit of adoption. I don't think we give it enough credit what's being said here shows how much God desires a relationship with us. He chose to adopt us after the fall. I'm reminded of a story I was told once. There were two brothers. One was natural born and one was adopted. They were fighting and in the heat of the moment, the natural born brother yelled, I'm the real son, you were just adopted. And the adopted brother yelled back, oh yeah, well they chose me. They got stuck with you. That's kind of the importance it's placed on this word adoption. There's no law or requirement to adopt someone. You do it 
out of love, out of, out of your heart. There's no mandatory requirement to take care of the child that's, that you adopted as opposed to a natural-born child, which you were obviously obligated to take care of. God chose to make a path back to him. He chose to try for a relationship. He counted the cost, and he chose to spend it anyway in order to adopt and reconcile a sinful people back to him. There are times that uh, we need to go one place and my wife is going somewhere else. We will give the girls a choice. Do you want to ride with mama or do you want to ride in the truck with daddy? Nearly every time, one or two of them will choose to go with me. The times that none of them want to go with me, it kind of hurts. Now, I'm sure there are ulterior motives a lot of times, like which parent is going to the place that will be the most fun or what are my odds of getting ice cream out of this deal. But... My point is that little pain that you get in your heart from a brief momentary rejection, that has to be a hundred times worse for the rejection that God feels after he created us, created everything for us. We reject him, he offers our son to reconcile us, and we reject him again. That's why verse 12 says we are debtors. We owe all that we are to God, and we need to try our best to live according to the Spirit. In verse 18... For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. That last verse, for we know the whole creation groans together and labors with birth pangs together until now. I think there's a lot to be said for this verse. Verse 18 as well. The the whole creation, the whole world, in so many ways is not firing on all cylinders. It's not operating up to its full capacity by any means. We often hear on the news and from political platforms with an agenda how we're destroying this planet. You know, in a lot of ways, I think that may be true, not because of global warming or because we use oil, just simply because of sin. Because we sin, this whole planet had to suffer. Genesis 3 and 21, by my understanding, is the first recording of anything having to die because of sin. Unto Adam... Also, and to his wife did the Lord God make coats of skin and clothe them. Whatever animal was used to make these skins died because of sin. This whole world is just surviving instead of thriving like it did in the beginning. The rot, rust, decay, destruction, thorns, thistles, and death. That's, that is verse 22. The whole creation is groaning in labor, wanting the heat to let up, just wanting the pain to ease, just wanting a drink. So many aspects of life make for death by a thousand cuts over the course of 70 or 80 years. But all of us that have children understand the joy after the labor of a new baby. That's why you have to loop back around to verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. We have to strengthen our faith through the scriptures constantly so that we can have a constant remembrance that the pains and heartaches that we're going through this life will not even compare to what is store, what is in store for us who remain faithful until death. In verse 23, not only that, 
But we also, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves, grown within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. For we were saved in this hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one still hope for what he sees? But if we have hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. I have someone close to me that told me one time he could not fathom heaven. He could not fathom not having work to do, not having tasks, not having a sense of accomplishment that labor tasks provide. I think we as Americans have a very polluted idea of what heaven is that's not founded in Scripture. Even in the church sometimes we get focused on how bad the mortal flesh is that we forget that God created it. We often think of heaven as this out-of-body experience in the clouds where we pluck harps all day. I'm going to go down a train of thought that I'm, and study that I'm kind of new to. The only reason I'm willing to do it is because I was tasked with Romans 8 rather than choosing Romans 8. I would love continued study or debate on the subject, but I ask for grace when you decide to do so. So did God make a mistake with creation? Was making flesh a bad idea so the next existence needs to be an out-of-body spiritual one? Everything God created in Genesis, he said, was good. Then in verse 31, then God saw everything that he had made, and indeed it was very good. So either God made a mistake or he lied, and I don't think there's anybody here that would argue for either of those points. So we have to be able to admit that in the beginning, flesh was very good. Material things, earthly things, things that were tangible and not spiritual only. I bring all of this up because of verse 23. Not only that, but we also, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves, grown within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. The redemption of our body. This implies heaven will have flesh. We will not just be wisps of spiritual vapor. We will have a new body. In Revelation, we see that all things are going to be made new. In chapter 21, starting in verse 1, Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also there was no more sea. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes, there shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. <clears throat> if we're going to be a spiritual body or spiritual being only existing in a faraway place called heaven, then why would God create a new earth? Heaven is better to be thought of as the hereafter or the afterlife. Heaven is simply a restored renewed, redeemed existence. Verse 21, Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. The heaven that's spoken of here is simply outer space, the stars and other planets. The original earth and the original outer space will be destroyed and a new one will be created. Rather than the third heaven that we think of getting to go to someday, the place where God resides, we have to remember that's not how God works. 
he's not going around traveling in between places. Everything, all existence is in his presence. We're all on a giant monopoly board. He doesn't have to travel from heaven to earth any more than we have to travel from Baltic Avenue to boardwalk on the board game. Making a full circle to the thought process earlier of not being able to comprehend what we're actually going to be doing in heaven, apart from plucking harps, we need to think of heaven as simply a renewed earth and our restored and redeemed body, rather than some faraway spiritual existence. I think it's safe to assume that if we will have renewed flesh, that we will have tasks, work to do, actual purposes to accomplish. Genesis 2 and 15, Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to tend and keep it. I have a hard time understanding what needs to be done in a garden that needs no irrigation and has no thorns or thistles. But evidently there was some form of work to do. If this world is going to be renewed, then the original tasks that Adam and Eve had will be renewed for us as well. If we don't believe that, then by default, it's my understanding that we imply that God made a mistake in the beginning and now has to try something new to see if that works. I'm going to move on now, uh, starting back in verse 26. Likewise, the Spirit also helps in our weaknesses, for we do not know what we should pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Now, <clears throat> he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose, for whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that we might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen. Who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are killed all the day long. We are counted sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us, for I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. <clears throat> Have you ever not known what you should pray for? Have things been bad enough or hard enough that you didn't even know what you should ask God for? We need to be in the scriptures enough to have a constant remembrance that God will a constant remembrance that God will not forsake his promises to us regarding eternity. 1 Corinthians 10 and 13, no temptation has overtaken you except such is common to man. But God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted above what you are able, but with the temptation will also make a way of escape 
that you may be able to bear it. I believe that we can apply this verse to our trials as well. After all, if you think about it, if our faith is faltering during our trials, then what's happening? We're being tempted. We're being tempted to forsake our faith. We have to remember that everything that has happened to you is nothing new. It is all common to man. When hard times come in my life or challenges or heartaches or pains, I have to remind myself that if I couldn't handle it, God wouldn't have allowed it. That's not saying God caused it. That's not saying that God is the one that's tempting you. That's not saying that this is part of God's plan for you. This is simply pointing out that we all have to suffer the consequences of sin, our own sin and the sin of others. But we have to take solace in the fact that if we couldn't bear the pain or withstand the temptation, he wouldn't allow you to. Just like it stated in verse 26, the Spirit makes intercession for us when we pray. Whether we're feeling defeated by sin or defeated by something that's happened to us, we have the Spirit of God on our behalf working to align our will with the will of God. Our prayers are being heard, and they are being answered. Sometimes the answer is no. Or do you not realize that every good thing in your life could very well be answered prayers? We get so caught up in the bad sometimes that we forget the good. I stopped and I really thought about it the other day. Things were going good. I I was really thinking about how many blessings I have in my life. And I was thinking about how many bad things could have been so much worse than they were. And I felt a little bit of shame because I don't think the good in my life is a result of my own prayer life. Oh yeah, thank you Lord for this food and my generic blessings and be with the sick people by the way, amen. It really hit me the other day that maybe all the good in my life is the result of someone else's prayers. Maybe somebody here has been praying for me, my well-being, my family. Maybe I'm riding the coattails of someone with much stronger faith than myself. It's something to consider if we're honest with ourselves when it comes to self-examination and our spiritual walk. You know, I get it. Sometimes things are just literally not going good. We have pain, sickness, death, heartache, and sin to contend with on a daily basis. Verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are killed all the day long. We are counted sheep for the slaughter. Sometimes bad things happen to good people. We have to endure. We cannot allow the bad things in this world to shatter our faith and cost us eternity. How do you measure this lifetime to eternity? What kind of scale do you have to use? Not only that, but our entire life on this earth is not bad. Every moment of joy at the birth of a new baby, marriages, baptisms, when the singing is beautiful, when the weather's perfect, all of that goes on the good side of the scale. Eternity is immeasurable. But the scale is is tipped so far to the good side that the bad side, you can't even measure it by comparison. It only seems bigger than that because it's what's in front of our face currently. We have to have our noses in the scripture to constantly remind us of the scope of eternity without pain, without crying, and without death. In verse 37, Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us, For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able 
to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Neither death. That, to me, is, is, tells me that this is a promise that this passage is not for this life. It's for the life to come. The love of God through Jesus Christ is what we have to look forward to. The promise of eternity with him. <clears throat> we were never promised an easy life here and now, protected and sheltered from sin. I hope I haven't done this chapter a disservice. I feel that there's a lot of meat left on the bones. There was just so much material and so much, many different paths that I could have taken when building this study. It was just a little bit overwhelming. We've not discussed the gospel today, and we never want to close the service without offering an invitation to all those present that may wish to be reconciled to God. If you've been taught the gospel and understand and believe that in order to obtain salvation, you need to be baptized, come in contact with the blood of Christ, we ask that you come forward and sit on the front seat as we stand and as we sing. <clears throat>